This is Guns and Butter. I think they can keep this up until the dollar bubble pops. When the dollar bubble pops, they simply lose control because, as I said again, the value of all financial instruments that are denominated in dollars will fall when the value of the dollar itself falls. And when the value of a financial instrument falls, that means like the price of the bond falls, the, the other side of that is the interest rate rises. And when the interest rate rises, the value of the debt instruments on the big bank's books falls and their lack of solvency becomes clearer and the whole crisis gets out of hand. So it's like a perfect storm. And see, there's no really way, there's no real way out. How, how can the Fed get out of this? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Paul Craig Roberts and Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Bubble Economy. We begin with Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, who was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy and Associate Editor of the Wall Street Journal. He was a columnist for Business Week, Scripps Howard News Service, and Creators Syndicate. He has had many university appointments. His internet columns have attracted a worldwide following. His latest book, The Failure of Laissez-Faire Capitalism and Economic Disillusion of the West, is now available in English as an e-book. He is also the author of The Tyranny of Good Intentions and How the Economy Was Lost, The War of the Worlds, among many others. Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, welcome. Glad to be with you, Bonnie. You have a new book out, The Failure of Laissez-Faire Capitalism and Economic Disillusion of the West, Towards a New Economics for a Full World. You have said that there are three bubbles in the U.S. economy. What are they? Well, there's the bond market bubble, the stock market bubble, and the dollar bubble. And could you describe those bubbles and why you characterize uh, these aspects of the economy as bubbles? Sure. The United States economy has uh, two very serious problems for which there may be no solutions. Uh, one of them, of course, is the offshoring of jobs that's been going on for 15, maybe 20 years. It's deindustrialized the country, has destroyed millions of um, uh, middle class manufacturing jobs and also millions of professional service jobs that used to be uh, filled by uh, university graduates. Now, uh, so this has uh, made the economy uh, dead in the water. If people don't have employment, that's providing rising incomes, there's no way a consumer economy can can grow. And so the economy is dead. Now that's not directly related to the bubbles. The bubble economy comes from the financial crisis, which was produced by the deregulation. You know, we had about 25 years of deregulation. 
especially financial deregulation. The entire financial market was deregulated. Federal regulators were actually prevented uh, from uh, regulating uh, over-the-counter derivatives. And so we had this uh, massive unleashing of uh, greed and debt leverage and fraud, which produced uh, uh, the financial crisis and, and uh, major financial concentration, what they now say are banks too big to fail, that have to be kept alive by public subsidies. Now, the bubble relates to the insolvency of these monstrous banks. The values of the debt-related assets on the bank's books uh, are so low that the banks are insolvent. And so the Federal Reserve, that's what the Federal Reserve policy of quantitative easing is directed toward. By purchasing a trillion dollars of new debt every year, that is by creating a trillion dollars of new money to buy a trillion dollars of debt, both newly issued debt by the U.S. Treasury and uh, existing debt, such as mortgage-backed securities from the banks, the Federal Reserve has driven real interest rates negative so that the rate of return one gets in interest is less than the rate of inflation. That means you have a negative real interest rate. Now, why do they do that? They do that because the lower interest rates, the higher the price of debt instruments. And so by driving the interest rate into negative territory, the Federal Reserve has raised the value of the debt-related instruments, derivative instruments on the bank's books. Well, you can see now why we would have a bond market bubble. You have massive issuance of debt by the U.S. Treasury, a, a, an annual operating deficit of over a trillion dollars that's being monetized by money creation so that the dollar is being created at a far higher rate than the demand for dollars. So what sense does it make to be purchasing bonds that pay negative rates of interest when the debt is exploding and the money supply is exploding. So that's just a bubble waiting to pop. Now let's move on to the stock market bubble. Where does that come from? That comes from the fact that all the money that the Federal Reserve is pouring into the banks is not being lent out to consumers. They're too indebted to borrow and the banks are too busted to lend. If this money, if this trillion new dollars every year was finding its way uh, through the banking system into the economy, we would be experiencing very high rates of inflation. So what, is the bank, what are the banks doing with the money? They are speculating in the stock market, mainly, I believe, in stock market futures. So if you, in other words, if you, if you bet on stocks in the future market, that causes prices in the market to rise. So the stock market bubble then is also directly related to the Fed's uh, quantitative easing. The third bubble is the dollar. The dollar is a bubble 
because it's the world reserve currency. It's supposed to be a store of value, a means of transaction to settle international payments throughout the world. In other words, every country's balance of payments is settled in dollars. Commodities are priced in dollars. What's happening to this dollar standard? Well, we've already said the Federal Reserve is creating a trillion new dollars every year. There's no demand for a trillion new dollars every year. And yet we have vast amounts of dollar and dollar-denominated instruments in the hands of foreigners, foreign central banks, foreign investors. For example, foreigners own uh, over 34% of the United States public debt. So foreigners are sit sitting on $5.5 trillion in U.S. Treasury bonds. In addition, they own many other dollar-denominated dollar financial instruments and real assets. So they, they've got all of these dollar holdings, and they're watching the so-called superpower water down their holdings by creating a trillion new dollars in debt and new money every year. So the dollar is a huge bubble waiting to burst. Why hasn't it burst? Because there's no clear sign of an alternative currency. The euro is in trouble because first of the American derivatives that was sold to Europe and now because of the sovereign debt crisis. So the euro is in trouble, so it's not serving as an alternative. The Chinese have not released their currency into world markets where it could take the role of a reserve currency. So there's really no other currency, but the dollar is being chipped away at gradually and gradually. We see th these agreements between what they call the BRICS, uh, Brazil, China, Russia, uh, India, South Africa, these countries have now agreed to settle their trade with one another in their own currencies and not use the dollar. Uh, the Chinese and the Japanese are making a bilateral agreement to settle their balance of trade in their own currencies and not use the dollar. We see uh, an Asian uh, currency block forming that's moving away from the use of the dollar. And so all of these developments cause the demand for dollars in international markets to decline and dry up. And as they do, the price of the dollar, its exchange value, has to fall. Now, that's when the bubble pops. When the dollar falls, the Fed can no longer control interest rates by buying bonds because everyone looks and they can see that if the value of the currency in which a financial instrument is denominated is falling, then the instrument itself must be falling. And so bond prices will collapse, which means interest rates will rise, and there'll be a massive wipeout of uh, wealth and bonds and stocks, in fact, all dollar-denominated assets. So that is the scenario. Uh, that's the bubbles, where they came from. And that is the most likely ending. When the dollar goes, all the bubbles pop. 
I have heard you say that the Fed is naked short-selling the precious metals market, gold, etc., which is in a bull market. What is naked short-selling, and why would our central bank be shorting gold or silver in the speculative paper market to suppress the price? Well, if you're trying to control, if you're trying to control uh, bond prices and have zero or, or actually negative real interest rates, and the currency in which these bonds are denominated is the dollar, and the dollar is rapidly losing value in relation to precious metals, as it's been doing for 10 years and was doing very rapidly uh, in 2011 when the gold price hit $1,900 an ounce. This was an indication that the dollar really wasn't worth its exchange value. When you see it losing value so rapidly to gold and silver, then the whole question is, what is that bond really worth? And if it's not worth what it looks like in its fixed dollar price, then the interest rates are going to rise because the price will fall. So the Fed said, okay, we got to break up this attack in the precious metal market on the dollar. How can we do that? Well, of course, it has all the big banks as its agents because they're all totally dependent on the Fed in order to stay alive. If the Fed wasn't pumping all this money into them and driving up uh, debt prices, they would all be insolvent. So the Fed simply has uh, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, whoever, go in. There are two gold markets. One is the demand for the metal, people who actually want to possess it. And then there's the paper market for speculators, where people bet on the price. What's the price going to be uh, next week, next month, whenever? And they, and so it's it's like a casino. This these paper speculative markets. So they go in there and they say, okay, um, we're going to sell uh, $100 billion of paper shorts. We're going to short the gold market, $100 billion or whatever figure they decide. Now, when you dump, uh, when you short a market, you stop its rise. You can drive it down. And so they operate in the paper market in order to offset the con- constant rising demand in the market for physical possession. Now, how do we know they're doing that? Well, they haven't called me up to tell me, but when you have a bull market, as we've got in gold and silver for possession, you don't short bull markets, you ride them up. Who's ever heard of shorting a rising bull market in stocks? It's not what happens. (laughs) You get get wiped out, you go, you short a bull market in stocks, unless you hit it right at the turning point. And so they use these paper shorts to cap the price of gold. They really don't want it going over 1700 1750 And that is the way they offset the upward pressure on the price of gold and silver from people taking physical possession. You know, more and more central banks are are uh, buying into gold. Everywhere they're lightening up on their dollars. It's not a major massive move that would destabilize a system all at once, but it just sort of slowly chips away at it. 
So that's the reason the Federal Reserve sells naked shorts. A naked short, what that means is that they don't really have any gold to sell. And if whoever bought the uh, paper instrument asked for payment in gold, uh, they'd have a hard time. <laughs> they'd have a hard time <laughs> delivering it. But in the paper market, people are content with the profits on the paper transactions. And the the paper gold market, they're not really interested in acquiring gold and silver. They're just speculating on price movements and price differences. So the Fed can sell what's called a naked short. A real short is you you uh, would borrow the gold somewhere, you would sell it, uh, and you would bet that the price is going to fall, and so you can buy it back and repay the person you borrowed it from at a less price than you than you originally sold it for. So, but that's not what they're doing because the paper market is not dependent on actual physical metal. It's just these paper transactions. Now, now they can do this because why? They can just keep printing more dollars? And how long do you think they can keep this up? I think they can keep this up until the dollar bubble pops. When the dollar bubble pops, they simply lose control because, as I said again, the value of all financial instruments that are denominated in dollars will fall when the value of the dollar itself falls. And when the value of a financial instrument falls, that means like the price of the bond falls, the the other side of that is the interest rate rises. So, and when the interest rate rises, the value of the debt instruments on the big banks' books falls, and their lack of solvency becomes clearer, and the whole crisis uh, gets out of hand. So, those are the. Uh, it's like a perfect storm, and see, so there's no really way. There's no real way out. How, how can the Fed get out of this? Can, can the Fed simply stop buying bonds? Well, if it does that, the interest rates are going to rise. Um, that will hurt stock and bond markets and make the banks insolvent. So, but it, it, but it might help the dollar if interest rates rose. But they can't let that happen. So what they're trying to do is to keep this going as long as they can. I mean, they're just sitting there day to day wondering, maybe Europe will go first, they say. You know, maybe the sovereign debt blows up and that sends more money here, which keeps the process going. Right. As long as they can sort of export the crisis, then they look better, right? That's right. Plus, you see, if everybody is printing money, like the Japanese apparently are going now to print money, um, the European Central Bank is going to print money, though it's not clear how much money the Germans are going to let them print, but they're going to print. So if everybody's printing money, then they all get in a similar situation. In other words, we force this kind of policy on the rest of the world so that 
to prevent their currencies from rising to the dollar. So if everybody is printing, it's harder for the dollar bubble to pop. But the world is, uh, is very unpredictable, and various things could happen. Suppose, for example, Hong Kong. You know, the Hong Kong currency is coupled with the U.S. dollar. Suppose they decoupled it. Well, it would be a sign of a loss in confidence in the dollar. It would be a sign of China taking another big step into uh, international monetary affairs. It, it could set off, that could set off a crisis. I'm speaking with economist and former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. Today's show, The Bubble Economy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. There are a lot of things that could happen. For example, Cyprus. Uh, what they've done in Cyprus is to redefine a depositor in a bank. He's no longer a depositor. He is now said to be a lender, investor. He's lending to the bank, investing in the bank, and therefore his deposit is risk capital, and his risk capital is at risk. So if the bank has trouble, he has to expect to lose his deposits or some share of his deposits. Well, this is a precedent. It redefines the situation for depositors throughout the Western world, throughout Europe, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. All of a sudden, oh, my money is not actually a deposit. I, it's an investment in the bank, and if the bank has trouble, I have to expect to lose my deposit. This could cause panic. Um, suppose the, um, the troubled uh, Spanish and Italian economies, suppose those people say, you know, I wonder if they're going to do that to us. Is that how they're going to make us finance the bailout? Uh, and people withdraw from the banks. Well, you know, the banks don't have enough money for everybody to withdraw because they have loans. <laughs> and calling loans is uh, very risky because the people usually can't pay them off all at once. And so, so all kinds of things can happen. There's now so much uncertainty caused by policymakers. You have to remember now, it was the policymakers who deregulated the financial system that allowed the financial crisis to happen. Without that deregulation, we would not have banks too big to fail. We would not have J.P. Morgan with derivative exposure equal to the world gross domestic product. The banks got nowhere near the capital to cover that kind of exposure. So you wouldn't have um, the situation uh, that's developing in the EU, except for the policymakers. So the policymakers will, first of all, cover up for themselves. They'll try to save the banks as long as they can, and then it'll be somebody else's fault, not theirs. It's a very risky, dicey situation that we're in. And when you think about, you know, where are your assets safe? As no one really knows. 
Right, and you're you're referring to the so-called resolution of the Cyprus banking crisis, where they are going to expropriate a certain percentage of deposits over a certain amount. And do you feel then that there are ramifications of the Cyprus crisis beyond Cyprus? Well, yes, because you see, Cyprus was considered a safe haven. And now they find out that they're not even considered depositors. If you're in the banks there, you are an investor. <laughs> in other words, investors are not people who own or not the people who own the shares of the banks is the depositors. So to save the shareholders of the banks, they're going to take the money from the depositors. So this is a this is theft. And they're just redefining it to make it look legal, but it's theft, they're stealing depositors' money. And they're doing it as part of the uh, banking, uh, as a solution to the banking crisis in in uh, the EU. Well, uh, the banking crisis originated with the uh, sovereign debt problems, and they, they're still there. You know, Greece, Italy, um, Spain, Portugal, these countries uh, can't service their debt. And so what they did in, in, in Greece was to make the people cover it by cutting their wages, cutting their their Social Security pensions, cutting back uh, social services, laying off government workers, and selling national assets, and turning that money over to the banks. Well, in Cyprus, the crisis is somewhat different, and it's and they've decided to solve it by simply confiscating bank deposits. The original plan was to uh, take some of every depositor. If you had less than 100,000 euros, they were gonna take, I think, 6.5% uh, of your deposits. If you had more than 100,000, they were gonna take 9.9%. This caused a great social uh, uproar, and we, and we uh, saw that the parliament wouldn't approve it. So they've backed off, and now what they're doing is attacking large depositors in the two big banks. So people with 100,000 euros or more, they're going to take perhaps 40% of their deposits. But it's limited to two banks. So this then shifts the burden off the average person onto uh, the rich. And it looks like most of these large depositors are, are from uh, other countries, particularly Russia. So that sort of reduces the political fallout in Cyprus among the population, but it sends the message everywhere that, hey, look, it doesn't, it's not safe having your money in a bank for a new reason. On top of all the other reasons, now you've got to worry about they'll take your money in order to uh, make sure the shareholders of the banks don't lose any money. So this is a very serious situation, and it could it could lead to uh, runs on banks and collapses. And on the other hand, bad people may simply accept it. They may say, "Well, they're only going to do it to a few rich people. They're not going to do it to us." You can't predict 
the public response, but it is fraught with possibilities of uh, of uh, panic. When one of the bubbles pops, be it the dollar, the stock market, or the bond market, what is this going to look like in your view? And now, obviously, other countries are also printing money, okay? The U.S. is not the only one. But do you think that Western countries are experiencing a turning point in history? Is this going to be a, a massive change? Yes, I think the time of the West has passed. Um, and you'll see, I mean, Asia, rising Asia. The West has been very foolish and full of hubris and arrogance and has made all kinds of mistakes uh, because it thought that somehow it was naturally forever the head of the world. And the, the most serious mistake was allowing the corporations to move the jobs offshore because when you move the jobs offshore you move also the careers, the incomes associated with the careers, the tax base associated with the careers, the gross domestic product associated with the careers, all that's offshore. And then when the products are brought back to be sold in American markets they come in as imports and so your trade balance falls apart. So that, that was a stupid mistake. It's hard to understand how any country could shoot itself in the head like that. And the whole time they pretended, oh, this is free trade, this is free trade. It's got nothing to do with free trade. It's labor arbitrage. It was, and the only beneficiaries was short-term profits. It pushed up. It meant, it meant uh, you know, when you save on your labor, it goes into your profits. So it's paid out in capital gains to shareholders and in mega million-dollar bonuses to executives. So they gained by wrecking the economy. Well, this was an amazing era. And uh, I, I wrote about this for 10 years, and they just continue to do it. It's just because the people controlling the policy have an interest. Their, their short-term incomes are, are raised dramatically by this policy. And then the deregulation, it was obvious you should not deregulate the financial system. I mean, that's, we've known that since uh, the Great Depression. Uh, when, uh, the, uh, when Brooks Lee Bourne had tried to do her federally designated duty and regulate over-the-counter uh, derivatives, she was prevented by the Secretary of Treasury, by the Chairman of the Federal Reserve, and by the Chairman of the Securities Exchange Commission. They simply went to Congress and, and got it fixed so she had to resign. She wasn't able to do a job. So they didn't regulate these derivatives, which have exploded in these massive financial crises. You know, why did they do this? They had some ideology. Markets are self-regulating. Well, we can see how self-regulating they are. We're in a major crisis and have been now since, what, December of uh, 2007? How long ago was that? <laughs> We've been in a crisis all these years. Do you think that our central bank, the Fed, should be under should be a government agency under the Treasury? Do you think that having a a private a so-called a private central bank is a big piece of the problem? I, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of people that say that. I think I think the problem 
comes not so much from how the central bank was set up than from this notion that uh, financial markets are self-regulating. This, this is a product of financial deregulation, not of how the Fed was set up. Now, I'm sure there are better and worse ways to have a central bank. And I'm sure there are good arguments about whether you should have one or not have one. And they're, they're all worth exploring and talking about and debating. But for now, the real problem is they deregulated the financial system. They, they uh, allowed, uh, they, they uh, got rid of Glass-Steagall, which separated commercial banks from investment banks. So now uh, the banks can use uh, depositors' money to speculate in markets. This is absurdity. They, they removed the uh, restrictions on debt leverage. So now financial institutions can leverage debt far beyond their risk capital. Well, this makes every bank vulnerable, the slightest disturbance. Uh, they, they've made, they, they took the limits off of uh, speculators in terms of how big a position they're allowed in a market so that speculators can now dominate commodity markets. These are just fabulous mistakes. It blows the mind that any group of policymakers could be so utterly stupid as to produce a situation like that. It's like dropping nuclear weapons on yourself. It's, it's mindless. It's idiocy. So if they're going to behave that way, it hardly matters how, how the central bank is set up. Oh, you know, I've noticed, just as an aside, I've heard your uh, kitty cats in the background. That is the cutest picture of you online holding your cats. You see, Bunny, they, um, they're I'm supposed to take them out at this time of day, and, and that's the female insisting that I stay to the contract. <laughs> the, these cats uh, came to me, uh, they were born in my study five years ago, and I believe they're half bobcat. Oh, wow. I think the mother cat, she was one years old, a, a tabby, sweet little thing that we, I think she was a victim of a foreclosure. We found her wandering around pregnant and took her in, and her kittens have bobtails. They don't have a cat physique. They have powerful Hindquarters, they sit much higher at the hip than at the shoulder. They have very long legs. Um, they also, uh, the male cat is 50% bigger than a house cat. Um, both cats stand several inches taller than house cats. The female has tufts on the end of her ears. And they, they're wild. They're wild animals. They act like it. Um, they accept me, of course, but so that's just my conclusion that whatever they are, they're not, I've had cats for many, many years and these are not cats. They're something else. <laughs> oh, that's really neat. <laughs> and, but I have to, we have, um, and they're very communicative and they've learned that they can talk to me. And so they are very insistent about we do things when we're supposed to, and so we got to wind this down because I got to go take them out because um, they're not going to get mad. <laughs> well, Bonnie, I think 
I think we'll have more, but I, but I can't always predict it. But I think, you know, uh, in April we could look. This Cyprus thing could could blow up in a big way. And also, you know, you should download the software and read the book. And we should come on about the book. The book is uh, it's astonishing. It'll it'll astonish you. Yeah, let's let's do that and let's keep our eye on Cyprus. I think we covered the current situation enough for now. And uh, let's keep an eye on Cyprus and, and see what comes out of that. And uh, if you can, the book's easy to read. It's not very long. Uh, and, and we can do a show on that. That'll, that'll help people get the nitty-gritty facts. You see, the financial press doesn't tell people things. Uh, the policymakers don't tell you. You really can't find out. They just tell you a bunch of lies. Oh, we have a recovery. Oh, we ha we're creating jobs. Oh, we have low inflation. The economy is growing. Oh, none, none of that's true. None of that's true. And so, you, as you'll see if you read this book. <laughs> well, Dr. Roberts, I will uh, read the book, and then maybe we can do an hour-long show on the book in April sometime. That would be terrific. Yeah, that's a good idea, Bonnie. Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, thank you. Well, Bonnie, it's a pleasure to, to talk to you and to have intelligent questions, and I appreciate your interest. I've been speaking with Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. Paul Craig Roberts was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy and Associate Editor of the Wall Street Journal. He was a columnist for Business Week, Scripps Howard News Service, and Creators Syndicate. He has had many university appointments. His internet columns have attracted a worldwide following. His latest book, The Failure of Laissez-Faire Capitalism and Economic Disillusion of the West, is now available in English as an e-book. Visit his website at www.paulcraigroberts.org. That's paulcraigroberts.org. I spoke with Michelle Chosarovsky about the impacts of austerity measures and academic and media economic dogma. Michelle Chosarovsky is an economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. Today's show... The Bubble Economy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What are the impacts of austerity measures? We are invariably presented with solutions to the crisis. And the solution to the crisis is the application of austerity measures. Now, what are austerity measures? Austerity measures are um, measures imposed on governments to curtail dramatically their levels of expenditure, but in fact it goes much further. It might imply the privatization of state assets, essentially to pay off the, the, you know, the public debt. And these measures are imposed by creditors, financial institutions. Uh, we are led to believe 
that by tightening one's belt, uh, this will constitute a solution to the crisis. Um, and the media has presented, I'm talking about the economic media, but also about the economics discipline. They have presented and upheld uh, economic austerity measures as a solution, much in the same way as you you would consider household and say, well, we mustn't spend more than what we earn. Okay? That is the analogy. So we mustn't spend more than what we earn, and we must therefore curtail uh, those expenditures. The problem of this reasoning, which is absolutely, uh, I mean, is, is fake, is that a country and a government is not a household. And when you start to curtail expenditures, you, um, you are, in effect, involved in the process of disengagement of, uh, of resources. You're laying off workers in, in health and education, because initially, if you start cutting in health, education, transport, essentially what happens is that uh, you, are, you don't have the money to, uh, to pay the salaries of the, of the nurses and teachers. Um, and uh, public uh, service employees. You don't have money to provide subsidies, let's say, to uh, regional enterprises, small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, lose the support of the government. So that, in, in effect, what, that, what those austerity measures do is to, to create dysfunctions within the public sector, collapse of health, education, uh, laying off of workers, but it doesn't end there, because when workers are laid off, uh, there's less tax revenue, so that the revenues collapse. Okay, people who are unemployed don't pay, don't pay taxes, and uh, when um, when workers are laid off, their spending capacity collapses. In other words, they don't consume anymore. So then there's a there's a you know there are secondary impacts. So if they don't consume anymore, they don't go out and and, uh, and spend in the shopping malls. They don't go out at night and have meals in restaurants and so on. So that 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 in effect, when uh, when the government curtails expenditures in a very dramatic way, it leads to a compression in society's uh, purchasing power. Uh, through lower wages, unemployment, bankruptcies, and that is a cumulative process. It, it, it doesn't resolve itself. It's a cumulative process. And so that when you apply austerity measures as an unbending solution, uh, you actually trigger collapse. So the solution becomes the cause of the economic crisis. And uh, entire... Um, you know, entire sectors of activity are wiped out. Um, you can see it unfolding in in, uh, in the United States of America. Uh, the situation in um, public services, the the demise of public services, uh, the existence of poverty, the absence of government programs coming to the rescue of poor people. All those programs ultimately rehabilitate spending. And they have multiplier effects because people have wages uh, through employment creation. They will then pay taxes. They will spend. More jobs are created. 
this is the me- this is the underlying mechanism of a of a of a national economy, and um, we are presented both nationally and internationally with a solution which is dogmatic because it doesn't address the consequences. We are told we have to apply austerity measures. We can't live beyond our means. Those austerity measures serve the creditors at the expense of virtually everybody else. In other words, they lead to collapse in employment, collapse in wages, collapse in public programs, they lead to bankruptcies, and eventually those bankruptcies lead to more bankruptcies. So it is a never-ending process. Uh, And um, what characterizes this economic crisis in relation to the 1930s is that we don't have an actual program uh, to stimulate the national economy. We stimulate the national economy by curtailing economic activity, not by creating economic activity. Um, and, um, and so that, in essence, this crisis, which is an ongoing crisis, is the most serious economic and social crisis in world history. It is also coupled by um, the channeling of tremendous resources, public sector resources, tax dollars into so-called defense, but in essence it's a war economy. War and the economic crisis are intimately related. Military, the military constitutes a very large sector of that national economy. It takes out a lot of money. It creates very few jobs, so it's big surplus profits. I would say that the two sectors which are developing under conditions of generalized recession are one, the weapons industry, and two, the luxury goods economy, which caters to a small segment of, uh, of the population. In other words, the duty drive-in, the hotels, the, you know, the, the resorts, uh, the fashionable boutiques, you know, in New York City, and so on. All of this is really uh, the the search for markets, the, the the luxury cars, the you know the the, the high lifestyles. Uh, why? Because uh, the majority of the people, their lives are being destroyed. Uh, their standard of living is collapsing, and. The, the entire fabric of of the economic system is now uh, is now geared towards a relatively small but expanding luxury goods economy. Um, so that I think is is the consequence of generalized austerity measures. It is a process of generalized impoverishment, uh, which in turn. Uh, leads to collapse in productive systems and a restructuring of the productive apparatus um, in in accordance with those two markets, uh, the the military-industrial complex on the one hand and the luxury goods economy. Well, how does uh, economic dogma, as it's taught today in universities, 
What role does that play in the current financial crisis? And could you also talk about, uh, let's say, the role that the media and economic dogma play in the current financial crisis? The economics profession generally is in crisis because what is taught at the university doesn't really provide students with any real understanding of what's going on in a national economy. Uh, It preaches certain concepts uh, which, uh, when applied, uh, lead to a process of social devastation. Austerity measures are the solution at the policy level. At the university level, we, uh, we formalize abstract models of behavior, of competitive markets, uh, but we're very much removed from any kind of understanding of real policy issues. And, and in effect, uh, economists, with, with very few exceptions, are unable to provide answers uh, to these to these issues, uh, so that in effect, uh, I would say that the economic austerity measures, which are being applied by governments, have the tacit support of the economics profession, but with virtually no analysis. Uh, but those economic austerity measures are are not uh, designed by economists; they are imposed by the creditors of the state and the powerful uh, financial brokers. Um, in other words, uh, we are at the level of dogma. And um, I know for a fact, having taught in, uh, in an economics department, that if students depart from the dogma, uh, they, will be, uh, they will be penalized in, in some way or another. In other words, if they provide the wrong, the wrong uh, answer to the exam, they will be penalized. And uh, uh, one very good example of that is, is, the, is the analysis of World Bank IMF reforms. At the university, there is debated discussion on IMF World Bank reforms, but the student always has to say that the solution to these countries' problems is the IMF, uh, rather than uh, analyze what these IMF reforms actually do. And I recall um, that on, I recall the, that on one examination paper, uh, the student was asked, "What is the impact of a devaluation?" Well, the, the official answer of a devaluation imposed on the developing country is a devaluation allows for the redistribution of wealth and should be viewed as a measure which reduces the levels of poverty. The actual impact of a devaluation is to compress wages. The, the levels of wages collapse because internal prices go fly high. Uh, in other words, these IMF-sponsored devaluations, what they do is to trigger inflation and, and they lead to a collapse in, in, in real wages. Now, if, if a student gives that answer on his exam paper, he's out. Okay? Uh, I'm talking about, you know, PhD comprehensive exams and so on. So that 
we are in a situation where we are in a situation uh, where the economics profession does not have the tools to address the most serious economic crisis in world history. They're not even aware that this is an economic crisis. Their, their discourse is not, a, is not in any way related to the crisis which, which is affecting millions of people around the world. And the, the stylized solutions that they present have nothing to do with real economic phenomena. Now, if we look at the financial or business media, and business people are a little bit more practical and have more understanding of what actually is going on, uh, we may have some more, we may have a little bit more analysis, uh, uh, critical analysis in the financial press compared to what the academics uh, present us, but that nonetheless, uh, this unbending consensus uh, which uh, tends to obfuscate real, you know, the real mechanisms of the financial system uh, overrides. I mean, occasionally we'll discuss, you know, issues of financial corruption, the Enron scandal, and so on and so forth. But by and large, uh, what prevails in the financial and business media is really... Uh, support of, of, of free market mechanisms, the acceptance that there can be some, um, you know, corruption or irregularity or fraud, uh, but th this is the exception rather than the rule. The rule is fraud. This is a fraudulent and criminal um, uh, economic system uh, because it... it, it uh, it manipulates financial markets with a view to appropriating wealth and stealing wealth, whether it's stealing wealth from the public purse, as in the case of Greece or, or Spain, or whether it's stealing wealth when, let's say, stock market values collapse um, as a result of an announcement by, uh, let's say, J.P. Morgan Chase, that their stock values, uh, that they've made losses and then there's going to be collapse which subsequently occurs and people uh, across the land lose money because they have that in their savings portfolio. Um, in, in essence, this is a fraudulent and criminal financial apparatus, which has the support of the state. It has governmental support. Uh, it is regulated by the state, but at the same time, the regulators are really in effect approved uh, by the people who are being regulated. So Wall Street doesn't necessarily appoint government regulators, but it makes sure that the, the nature of that regulation will not in any way undermine uh, their, uh, their powers to manipulate uh, markets, to rig markets, to appropriate wealth through inside information, uh, to uh, to produce the demise of competing financial institutions through short selling and so on.
I've been speaking with Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show has been The Bubble Economy. Michelle Chosodovsky is an economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. He is a contributor to a new anthology, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. Visit the Center for Research on Globalization website at www.globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Earlier, we heard from Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. Visit his website at www.paulcraigroberts.org. That's paulcraigroberts.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what this side yourself. <laughs>